Creative Power, Your Constructive Forces. Chapter One, Imagination. In this book, you are asked to consider a wonderful phase of personal power, which is latent, inherent, and abiding within you, the power of imagination. This power is a phase of your personal power. Your personal power, in turn, is a phase of the manifestation of that power, which is the source of all power and which is expressed, manifested, and employed in all phases of power of which you have or can possibly have any cognizance. By imagination is meant the power of the mind to create mental images or objects of sense previously perceived, the power to reconstruct or recombine the materials furnished by direct apprehension, the power to recombine the materials furnished by experience or memory, for the accomplishment of an elevated purpose, the power of conceiving and expressing the ideal. By many, possibly even by you up to this time, the idea and concept of imagination is confused and confounded with that of fancy. But this is an error which must be removed from the very start in your serious consideration of the subject of the constructive imagination which constitutes the field of the investigation and instruction set forth in this book. Let us pause a moment that you may note and familiarize yourself with this distinction and differentiation. Webster says, a distinction is now made between imagination and fancy. Properly speaking, they are different exercises of the same general power, the plastic or creative faculty. Imagination is the higher form of mental activity of the two. It creates by laws more closely connected with the reason. It aims at results of a definite and weighty character. Fancy is governed by laws of association which are more remote and sometimes arbitrary or capricious. Hence the term fanciful, which exhibits fancy in its wilder flights. As you proceed with this instruction, you will perceive the special and particular characteristics which distinguish that phase of imagination called constructive imagination from that other phase called reproductive imagination. You will also learn to differentiate between the passive form of constructive imagination, which is little if anything more than fancy, and that active form which constitutes the true constructive imagination with which we have to deal in this instruction. We ask you here to fix in your mind two pictures, each of which represents primitive man manifesting one of the two forms of constructive imagination. By seeing and remembering these pictures, you will always have at your command the touchstone with which you may test your imaginative processes. The first picture is that of primitive man sitting and thinking either passively contemplating the flow of the stream of reproductive imagination or memory in which is pictured the experiences of his past or else daydreaming and imaging himself playing a part in some new drama of experience or seeing others engaged in a like occupation. This is the incomplete state, all right so far as it goes and often useful to the extent of supplying raw materials for higher efforts but insufficient in itself, proper for purposes of recreation, but useless if it extends no further. 
Leaving our primitive dreamer, we ask you now to contemplate the primitive man who imagines for a purpose, who imagines to a definite end. See how different is this picture from that just contemplated. Our primitive man with the dawning constructive imagination perceived the inadequacy of his natural physical environment employed in his work of self-preservation, offense and defense, protection of his family, and in his striving for comfort and well-being. By means of such imagining, this class of primitive man raised the race from its position of physical weakness and comparative helplessness to its present position of dominance over the entire world of living things. What nature had denied man in physical weapons, he supplied to himself through the exercise of his constructive imagination. Constructive imagination raised man from his original lowly place in the world of living things to his present eminence and rank. By means of its power, man has attained heights which would have seemed far beyond him to one observing him in his original state. Man in his original or aboriginal state might well have been regarded by a visitor from a higher world as a most unpromising candidate for survival in the struggle for existence, let alone for the position of mastery and rulership over the other living creatures contemporaneous with himself. He was a much weaker animal than most of the others. He was less fleet of foot, and less agile in his movements. He was less equipped with tooth and claw. The great saber-toothed tigers, the huge reptiles, and the other powerful and ferocious animals of his environment were far better adapted for the struggle for existence than was this poor, puny, weak creature called man. He would have required a courageous imagination to pick man as the probable winner in the struggle for existence and the victor in the process of the survival of the fittest. But this weak creature, this puny and insignificant animal, possessed the latent power of constructive imagination by which he was enabled to overcome his natural obstacles. By means of this mental power, he was enabled to invent and to employ the implements, tools, and weapons with which he waged a defensive and offensive warfare against the fierce creatures of his environment and to create the material contrivances with which he was able to overcome the handicaps of his environment with which nature at first might have seemed deliberately to have burdened him. By means of this latent power, he proved himself to be the fittest to survive and the true victor in the struggle for existence. Man lacked the strong teeth and claws of the carnivorous animals, but he created artificial claws and teeth imitating those which nature had so freely bestowed upon the lower animals by making from the hard flint the spears, axes, and knives, specimens of which we now find buried in the earth. By creating strong clubs from the limbs and branches of trees, he equaled and even surpassed the striking weapons of the great beasts. By creating bows and arrows, he managed to overcome the handicaps of space and was able to touch his enemies while himself beyond their reach. He took a hint from the caves and dens of the beasts and improved upon them for his own occupancy. He took a hint from the birds and improved upon their elevated nests by building for himself safe refuges in the cliffs and the high trees, reaching these by ladders of his own construction. He imagined the plan of rolling great rocks before the entrances of his caves and dens, and he afterward 
imagined the protecting doors of wood and windows, and later chimneys. He imagined the idea of hurling stones at his enemies by means of slings, great bows, and primitive catapults, and of rolling large boulders down the mountainsides upon his enemies below. He imagined the idea of improving upon the floating log, in turn creating rafts, flatboats, hollowed out logs. He imagined the idea of the directing and propelling poles, paddles, and oars. He observed the rolling log, and from it, he imagined the solid, clumsy wheel, then the lighter spoked wheel, and was thus enabled to move heavy objects over long distances with comparative ease. He imagined the pulley and the lever and learned to apply them. He imagined implements with which to mash his food and grind his grain. He imagined the primitive hoe and the crude irrigation or draining ditch. He imagined the idea of using the skins of animals as clothing for himself to protect him against the weather. He imagined the idea of employing portions of trees for tent building. He adapted common natural things and converted them into uncommon artificial appliances for his comfort and welfare. And finally, oh wonder of wonders, he imagined the art and science of making and using fire. And ever since, man has continued to imagine things, ways of overcoming natural obstacles and handicaps, ways of converting natural things to his own use, comfort, and happiness. He imagined all these things little by little and created them in material objective form following the outlines of his mental subjective form. And he still continues to imagine things, greater things, larger things, more complex things. He will always continue to so imagine things for that is his characteristic quality, his constructive imagination which distinguishes him from the lower animals. Those of the race who were successful constructive imaginers, either as individuals or as tribes or peoples, survived in the struggle while the failures were crowded to the wall or went under. The fittest constructive imaginers survived and passed on to their descendants, their knowledge, and transmitted to them their mental tendencies. Thus man has evolved into the imagining animal the creating creature. Those individuals or peoples of the race who fail to keep up with the procession of the constructive imaginers, if not actually crowded out and destroyed in the struggle, survived only to become the parasites or the slaves of the conquerors. The slave races have always possessed less developed powers of constructive imagination than have their masters. When slaves develop constructive imagination, they cease to remain slaves. When the germ of constructive imagination begins to work in the minds of a subject people, that people is on the way to freedom. History may be read in the light of this fact. The physical might of the masters in the end surrenders to the mental might of the one-time slaves. The cunning of the fox has always overthrown the physical strength of the lion. The struggle for existence is still underway. The survival of the fittest is a fact of modern human existence, as well as of the past history of the race and the world in general. But now, more than ever, constructive imagination is the great element of the struggle, the great standard of the fitness to survive, succeed, and accomplish. The people, the race, the nation, and the individual possessing the greatest degree of development and application of continuous and persistent constructive imagination 
will be found to be the fittest to survive, all else being equal, will prove to be the ultimate winner in the struggle for existence. If man is ever succeeded by the Superman, as some have predicted, it will be found that the Superman is possessed of superior powers of constructive imagination and of a greater faculty of exercising and applying them, such as the law of evolution, of progress, of life. This then is the second picture. Look upon the first picture and then upon the one just presented to you. In the first, you will see the figure of the primitive man who just sat and thought and sometimes just sat. The thinking being merely daydreaming and passive imagination. In the second, you will see the picture of the real thinker, so well depicted in Rodin's magnificent figure of the thinker, but his thinking is not just thinking. It is thinking for a purpose and toward an end. It is constructive imagination directed toward a definite end and aim and firmly held there until the right image is created, the image then being transmuted into material form. The thinker of Rodin's figure is using his imagination just as he has learned to use his attention and his will, deliberately, purposively, to a definite aim, aim and end, and in a particular direction. He and his modern counterparts are evolving creators. They are constructing, contriving, inventing, designing, planning, projecting, building in the mind that which afterward will be built in physical form. They are the dreamers whose dreams shall come true, the creators of ideals which shall become real. This then is constructive imagination. This constitutes the subject matter of this book. This is the main theme of the instruction which we shall impart to you in the following pages. This is a far cry from the mere imagination, the fancy of the self-satisfied masses of the people, is it not? 